0: This week on Required Reading, we follow up a month of kind of classics, I guess you'd say, you know, books that a lot of people have read, with a more modern book. This week we are reading Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Fuller, a 2005 book with 9-11 as its plot point. Uh, This has been adopted by... Our school as a book for 10th graders to begin the school year. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for all you do to make required reading the success that it is. We appreciate you. Bye. Welcome to Required Reading. This week, we're tackling Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close by Jonathan Safran Foer, um, a relatively recent book, because 9-11 is a plot point. Um, I'm Nick Hoffman, your hostess for the mostest, and on panel we've got Mike Carroll.
1: And Mike Burns.
0: Um, I realize I started while Mike was still adjusting his microphone.
1: (laughs) Perpetually adjusting. Well, I think we're good. Uh, so just off the
0: bat uh, this book is about a kid named Oscar, Oscar Shell, whose father, Thomas Shell died on 9-11 and he's trying to get to the bottom of a mystery um, I this book came out after I was in high school, so I did not read this in high school or college uh, this is the first book of such that we have done so far this book came out in 2005 and was turned into a major motion picture starring Tom Hanks in 2011, I think um... But the two men in front of me have, in fact, taught it. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this?
1: Um, I'll start, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I think the, um, it came out of uh, we were tired of Death of a Salesman, right? Yeah. And so that used to be the book we would teach in the spring, and we were looking for something a little more contemporary and sort of just to build on our pedagogy about just reading and literature and that. And so... And we're... and it, 9-11 was something that the kids, maybe we were teaching them, might have mm-hmm. been alive or might be not even born for right. some of them. So uh, something they were curious about um, in living history, so to speak. And I think, I don't know how it came up, but it was a department meeting we were throwing out ideas. And I know it was the term that I had a sabbatical. So we, we ended up picking it and then you were the first guys to teach it, you and, and Riddick and Catherine, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's sort that of the origin really of that. Like and I think we want something that's a little most, more postmodern. And we can talk about that, just the structure of the novel itself and yeah. how it's very different from probably anything most of the kids have read. So yeah. uh, those are all sort of the origin. That's what I remember. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think so. I think uh, for the for the first year or so that we taught mm-hmm. it, uh, the students were really young because we teach it in 10th grade. And just with the way that the years lined up, um, it It seemed as though the the students were extremely young, definitely had no recollection of, uh, of anything that happened on the day of September 11th. And so I remember one of the first assignments that I always, that I always do with them is to go home and have the students ask their parents what they remember from that day. Um, And then the next day there's, there's, it's, it's funny because the students are fascinating, fascinated with September 11th. Uh, and they'll, they'll come in with stories about about either family members that were in New York on that day or um, that the, there's always a bit of a connection there. And I think that's part of the reason why they're so interested in it, because they really don't know September 11th. For anything besides a historical event, they they they, they don't have any memory of it. Um, and I think that we're now at the point where the students were not alive. When Definitely, the, the right. students that were teaching were not alive, uh, so that it makes it it makes it a, a little bit more even of a historical event uh, if if it, if they weren't even alive when it was that uh, uh, that that the event took place. So uh, yeah, so it's 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 really interesting to see them. Kind of like wrestle with some of the stuff that's in that's in the story.
0: Um, Mike, you, you need to be clear. Mike, yes. <laughs> Burnsy, um you said that this is a postmodern book, which makes it different than most kids have read. Um, I don't know how you people who are listening, my, our audience, our beloved downloaders, uh, have consumed this, um, but the movie kind of does this. But the structure of this book is very interesting, including if you listen to an audiobook, you wouldn't have gotten this. But the final few pages are like a flip book of the falling man falling upwards, which mm-hmm. is something. Um, uh, so I don't know how you want to get into this, but just I think we should start out by explaining how the structure of this thing fits.
1: Yeah, it's it, it sort of it's a deconstruction of the novel almost in that it's not linear. It's not exactly chronological. It's mm-hmm. jumping point of view uh, and place. And then there's uh, it's sort of multimedia and there's images like you talked about and then blank pages and pages full of like overlap text, um, which can be really confusing to the kids uh, when you start yes. and some get really frustrated. So I think it's a novel that, Pretty much have to teach or at least guide them versus like yeah. having it on an independent reading or something because a lot of them would just get frustrated and give up.
2: Yeah, there's there, there's a couple of those moments where I mean just visually you you have the the pictures that are kind of interspersed throughout, but then there's also some really cool things that uh, that uh, Fowler is doing with the. With some of like the fonts, there's a couple of pages where the, the words get like almost like squished together to the point that you can't really even perceive what it is that's being written on the page. There's, uh, kind of in old school, like T9 style, there's a couple of pages that are just numbers, which are the, the, uh, the digits that one of the characters is, is typing into a phone. We can, we can get into that later on. But there are, there, there's just some pages that are entirely blank. Um, So for a lot of the 10th graders, it's the first time that they're encountering a text that that does such such different things visually. Um, And then also the other thing that you're saying, Mike, about the the story not really taking place chronologically. And then you add on top of that that you really get three kind of main storylines that you're following Yeah, different points of view in in these different narrations and points of view that you're that that the reader is is taking in. And as a result, you, you, you get Thomas. You get Thomas's grandmother, and then you get uh, the you get Thomas. Oh, I'm sorry. You get Oscar. You get uh, Oscar's grandmother, and then you get Thomas. Um, and so you, you're, you're, in addition to kind of jumping in the years, you're also jumping from one narrative voice to another. So I always told my students at the start of each chapter to write the person who is speaking at the top of that chapter. And that I've gotten a lot of feedback that said that that was, that was extremely helpful because if nothing else, they at least know who is talking. And sometimes you even know who is talking to whom. Uh, but that's not necessarily always the
1: case. Yeah. And the tricky part is until you're 40 or 50 pages in, you don't realize who those chapters are. And then, right. Then it finally clicks as the different voices come through. So it's challenging that way, but it refreshing to to get them to sort of think in a new way critically, or at least sort of live with that confusion.
0: Well and it's it's just it's interesting because this is the third book we've done this season. And the first book has a fairly traditional narrative with a single narrator, and it's almost a series of vignettes tied together by a, a common theme, but the narrator is always the same. The second book plays around with that, and our main character is almost a Greek chorus and has no control over what's happening to him, but in Hitchhiker's Guide, Arthur is us, and he's just as baffled as we would be, mm. but fine. Here, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's all over the place, and that's intentional. It's supposed to be chaos after 9-11, and so the book is kind of chaotic. But it, it almost gets confusing if you're stuck with one narrator for too long. Right. Um, and I think the way you described it is perfect. Um, if only that, like, I mean... Mike's now topic. Burns, has taught with me now for years, I use little colored flags to mark things. I would have a different colored flag for each off like speaker, because at some points it shifts, and I'm just like, oh, this is no longer the precocious kid. This is clearly someone else. So is that, that how you preface it? Like, when you first hand them the book and say, this is what we're going to do, do you tell them you're going to be confused as to who's speaking at any given time?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I do. And I think that in some ways I kind of demystify a little bit of that for them, because I think for the students I I don't want as Mike as you were saying before I don't want them just totally like shutting down to the book and and not being not being uh in a position that they're that they're willing to even give it a shot because they're so confused about who it is that's talking so I do I kind of and there are some spoilers that we'll that we'll get into as well that as the as the story goes on so I do have to be a little bit careful but the I I do let them know who is talking at the start of each one of these uh, at the start of each one of these chapters? And I do think that it's that 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 helps them a lot to kind of uh, better understand just plot-wise and story-wise what it is that's taking place. I do want to go back for a second though, Nick, because I, I want to add on to something that you were saying about the vignettes in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, yep. and I think that this is a little bit vignette-y in some ways too, especially during Oscar's kind of. Uh, travel through New York and then you get a little bit of it with uh, Oscar's grandmother and even with Thomas as well but you get kind of like these little these encounters that he has and each one of them similar to the vignettes that you get in in To Kill a Mockingbird each one of those little encounters that Oscar has with the people in New York City adds a lot thematically and adds a lot uh, of depth narratively to the story so I think I act as i was kind of reviewing it again before uh before this podcast i was actually kind of struck by how 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 similar i thought that vignette structure was we talked about in tequila macamera I, I i was struck by how similar that at least thematically that that does come up in extremely loud and incredible close
1: i um to call back to a previous podcast um Tim O'Brien's thing they carry. And when I was teaching Beloved with Shannon Hipp, um, I teach this as trauma literature yeah. Um, and that it's sort of circuitous and recursive and you keep coming back and nothing is very clear and thing, images or ideas, people sort of get stuck on them and stuck in this cycle. Um, I'm not as nice as you, Mike. I don't tip them off at the beginning. Yeah. I just make them live with it because as we get to Oscar is essentially going on a quest, right, a, a yeah. journey to find – what happened to his father? Is his father still alive? He's hoping his father is still alive, even though probably part of him knows it's not true. Um, and so I I tell the kids, like, Oscar's just figuring this out, and he's confused. And so, you know, the author is trying to replicate that in you as a reader. So right. just just live with it. And eventually it'll get clear, and you'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm a little less directive about that. and Maybe that's bad. Maybe I should try to be more
0: helpful. Well, I mean, it also... More helpful. Well, it's also a very childhood thing. There has to be an answer, so let me find an answer. Right? Mm. And it's good. It's good in that way. Um yeah, yeah.
1: what do you think, Nick, for the first time? Because you hadn't read it before. I had not. Okay.
0: Um and I became a I knew that there was a movie, but I only saw the movie after the book. Um It's interesting. The the, the Sometimes I think the chapters go on too long that In a way that then I lose track of who's doing it. So Mm -hmm. if I put it down and I don't come, and I come back to it and I don't have a class, I'm just someone reading a book. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of who's speaking where. Um, and you know, then you get bogged down in like Thomas's dialogue for a while and then you lose track of like, Oh, now it's Oscar again. (laughs) And yes, at the end, it makes sense. They tie it all together. Um, but Oscar's, Thomas's quirk of being able to write and then not being able to express himself at all, kind of... It's it's kind of frustrating from a narrative perspective. It's funny. It's almost as though it's better visually than it is in book form because that's something you can film and something you can show and you can have someone who's losing themselves um, and then this little kid walking around. It, the character of Oscar himself reminds me of a lot of precocious kid movies of the 90s and early 2000s because... I don't know how you guys were when you were nine, but going across Manhattan, lying to my parents about the French teacher, that that's a lot for a kid to go on a quest, which, unlike a traditional quest, he's not necessarily called on to do. Mm-hmm. He calls himself to quest, which makes it all the more frustrating. Although, I mean, he thinks his mom is aloof. No mom could be this aloof. I mm-hmm. uh, wish we find out later. But. How do your kids, how do your students, relate to Oscar the character? Because he's he's our first in, and the majority of the book is his.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. It varies. Like like I, I would say this book is divisive in that way. Like some kids like him and buy into it. Some think he's a little it's unrealistic for a nine year old to do all this and mm-hmm. and what the author foyer is doing with that. I don't know. What about you, Mike?
2: Yeah, they're they're interested in Oscar. I think uh, I think you're you're writing that I think that it is, he can be, at least when we teach in 10th grade, a little bit of a divisive character. Um, they, some of them are annoyed by Oscar, um, and many of them want to know if Oscar is in some way on the spectrum. Right. Um, and I know from talking with Catherine, when when she would teach it, uh, she refused to give that as an answer. And I think she actually did a really great job with, with providing some, um, with some, pri- Providing some like secondary sources about uh, about ab- about things like Asperger's and and, uh, and not to be able to give them a straight answer as to yes or no, and I think that that was very intentional of her as well because as soon as you as soon as you try to put Oscar in a box, I think that you lose a lot of the dynamic nature of his character. Uh, but th- to say the least, they are they are fascinated by Oscar. Uh, if not, perhaps a little bit annoyed by him as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, he just, he's one of the few people very early on, obviously, he has a distinct voice because he's the narrator. Um, but I think dealing with trauma, as it is, trauma literature, it, it's just so interesting because, unlike, well, you already mentioned uh, the things they carry, in some ways, the things they carried is a very sparse book. Uh, also the, liter- the language reminded me a little bit of No Country for Old Men, which is also very sparse. And they don't even use quotation marks in there. Like, an- again, yeah. a very postmodern twist on literature. Yeah. But here, I mean, the other book that I know him for is Everything is Illuminated, mm-hmm. which is also a very colorful, very vivid, very full world that he's describing. So it's just this mashup of things I'd never seen before, which, you know, is why you would want to teach it um uh, as as pure curiosity
2: what term do you teach this it's third term
1: uh, yeah towards so from, the end of the year yeah, yeah. and
2: we we kind of march our way chronologically through through american literature starting in the fall and so it's it's the most recent I think for, for many of us, uh, it's the, it's kind of like what we end term three with, and it's the most recent text, just chronologically. From yeah, the
1: term. definitely.
0: Well, then I guess it also makes sense why it would replace, uh, Death of a Salesman, not only chronologically, but also it has weird time jumps. It has flashbacks within flashbacks, right? Right. And so, you know, it, it teaches them complex literary technique. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, I know we're already like 15 minutes in, but can you give, one of you try to give me
1: a plot synopsis? Um, so I'll start off, you finish, Mike. So Oscar um, we, is the narrator here. Um, his father uh, is in one of the towers uh, calling home. Um, Oscar is home from school and doesn't answer the phone. So these his father's messages go to the answering machine. Um, and then the towers collapse. And then Oscar, through his grief, is trying to figure out what to do, what happened to his father. Um, and so he tries to he gets a little clue um and it says black and he thinks that means somebody's name so effectively he's going to go through the phone book and he's very precocious and very smart you get that right from the beginning with his narration and his puns and you know um and so he's systematically going to Go find every person named Black in New York City until he can solve this mystery. Right, so right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you can imagine what an what an overwhelming task that would be for anyone, much less a nine year old. But I think it, it's by himself too. Yeah, 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 exactly. This this token that he that it kind of like launches him on this uh, reconnaissance expedition, as he as he calls it, because that's the that's what he would do with his dad and in in, uh, in going to the park, and uh, he his dad would send him on these these kind of like little little like, like missions scavenger story. hunts, right? Really. scavenger hunts. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. But the, the token that he gets is a key. And so he's looking for essentially what it is that this key goes to. And, and as a result, so that's kind of where those vignettes that I was talking about before come in, where Oscar in searching for what this key belongs to, uh, very symbolic uh, but he he ends up encountering a number of people whose last name is black in the city of New York, and that 's where a lot of those uh, a lot some of the pictures end up coming from throughout the novel and uh, as he's kind of like marching his way through the plot of this story it 's where uh, a lot of those those vignettes end up coming from so he meets he meets Abby black he meets uh mr black i 'm not sure if we ever get a name for like his know, upstairs neighbor. Or the no the the one the the older gentleman who travels with him through um
0: uh, i think it's just Mr. A Black Mr. Like,
2: a Black yeah. yeah i don't think we ever get a i don't think we ever get a uh like a first name on him but um uh, n- nevertheless we we encounter not a lot of a lot of different uh these these kind of like characters and each one of them some of m- many of them like Oscar have experienced some kind of loss or if they haven't experienced some kind of loss they they have some kind of like Similarity with Oscar, something else that overlaps with his story. Um, and as he's as he's kind of journeying through journeying through um, journeying through New York. Uh, at the same time, you're also getting information from uh, from a series of uh, letters. I think you could say from Oscar's grandmother to Oscar, entitled "My Feelings." Uh, and this is Oscar's grandmother telling Oscar a little bit about kind of like in. In the modern point in the story, so post September 11th, how it is that she's feeling? She lost just like Oscar lost his father. Oscar's grandmother lost uh, lost her son. Uh, and then there's there's Thomas who uh, who Nick, you were saying before, lost the ability to speak as a result of the trauma that he had experienced when he was uh, when he was younger as well. Uh, and you, you learn that he lost the ability to speak, but you don't learn why until much later on in the story. It, it turns out that it comes back to the the Dresden bombings uh, was the, was the, uh, an event that very, uh, very much affected Thomas. And as a result of the grief that he experienced afterwards, ended up losing his ability to speak. Right.
1: And his then girlfriend, which was his Oscars grandmother's sister. Yes. yes, right. So the, does that make sense? And
0: that was Dresden. Correct. The yes. Firebombing of Dresden. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is going to be hard to talk about because the plot intersperses. Um, and I mean, um, I, I don't know how much you guys yeah, feel no. comfortable
1: giving away the end. But, yeah, it's sort of a mystery too. So yeah, how how much do we want to reveal? Um
0: I mean, you're the teachers. I'll let you decide that. I'm 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 just the, the face of the operation. Um But you know, like Uh, We we can kind of come across this, right? The the Oscar is a, you know, nine-year-old who talks like he's 30 and rationalizes everything. Um, And that's the first point where you, like, where the kidness comes in, like, he decides to look for the people alphabetically rather than by location, and he justifies that. But that's a very kid thing to do, as opposed to, one of them literally lives in my building, why don't I just start upstairs?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is something. Um, I'll say I think Oscar, um, I personally don't like him much, to be honest. But as a writer, I can see the utility of him because he's both incredibly sophisticated but also incredibly naive. And so mm -hmm. there's a great tension you can create with the dramatic irony of what the reader knows or what the reader is figuring out before Oscar does. So It's it's, it's a good storytelling device, if nothing Mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and the the whole being on the autism spectrum, or I guess in 2005, they would have still said Asperger's syndrome, um, you get that coming through at some various points. Like, the first person he comes across is Abby Black, and she's having a throw-down fight with her husband, and he's just like, hi, I'm a child. And, like, there's no so- detection of social cues. Right. Which, is, that, that's, that's autism spectrum 101. And... That becomes an ongoing thing. Like, he's happy to be in this kitchen talking to this lady. Uh, and he, you know, and again, we're talking about him going through all the boroughs and he's like, this is the first time I've been to Queens before and all this stuff. And at the end of the day, she, you know, kind of kicks him out for now. And, um, it's just the kid has no idea what's going on, even though he hears the stuff around him. So I understand why the kids ask the questions. Mm. If I recall correctly, it's played up more in the movie. Um, But we also have this ongoing thing with the therapist and like tests Mm. being definitive or not. Um, And, you know, the kid's also suffering from trauma. So from the kid's perspective, they want him to, he, he thinks he wants to talk about the trauma. As a parent, we're thinking more and more like, well, oh, maybe there is something actually going on with this kid that he's just not processing. Because by the end of this, he's missed months of school, it seems like, too.
1: Um which yeah. is something. And layered in that too is Oscar's relationship with his mother and how she's grieving through his eyes. And initially it seems fairly indifferent from Oscar's point of view. Like yeah, right. she's not doing enough to and he's has some anger towards her because she has a a male friend and yeah, there's some jealousy there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's almost like a little bit of resentment there too. Um, and there's the absolutely heartbreaking line. I'm sure that you talk about it in class too. When, uh, I, I don't even know if I'd be able to read it without, without kind of like choking up. But when, uh, when Oscar says to his mother that if I could have chosen, I wish that it would have been you. Um, and it's, it just like absolutely tears your, your heart out um but but i think that that is one place where where you do get some growth from oscar over the course of the story and you don't see it everywhere it can almost seem as like oscar becomes very frustrated with the fact that not all questions have an answer and not all tragedy has a reason and you you can kind of sense that frustration that he that he undergoes throughout the story But you do get a little bit of growth there, I guess you could call it. Um, not even going so far as to call it like redemption, but, but it's, but you do get a little bit of that growth from his character at the end when he's talking to his mother. And it's, it's kind of this, this, uh, the, in the very last chapter, when you get this, like, I'm, I, I'm gonna be okay, but things are hard right now. And, and he he has some some lines spoken to his mother that do show a little bit of that growth.
1: Yeah, not unlike, as you're saying, this scout at the yeah. end of The Hill Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. So I sort of realized that, oh, the world isn't literally as black and white as you mm-hmm. might hope or think. And, and how do you navigate? So it's a coming-of-age story yeah. in that way as well.
0: Um, the... This book is so. I mean, it's not confusing. It's just hard to talk about. I apologize, yeah. everyone. Um, so, from here, he's going on his uh, journey. When's the first time we get someone else's narrative? It's right around here.
2: Yeah, I think it's 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 shortly after he kind of like goes on that expedition. We get the we get Thomas in the cafe, and he's uh he has already lost his ability to speak, and he makes that very clear in the first part of a chapter when he's saying that the first word that he lost was, was your name was Anna. Um, And the, the, there's always a little bit of confusion there from the students. They're like, wait, who's, who's this Anna that we're talking about? Who is this, who is this Anna that, uh, that is clearly so important. And you don't learn that until, uh, until later on. And then from Anna, it went to the word and, uh, and, and Thomas needed to, and this is that, this is that grief. Um, that he that he started losing words from his vocabulary uh, as a result of this trauma that he had experienced, uh, and so he lost the word and. And it's in this this exchange that Thomas explains his uh, his the the, the 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 relationship that that Thomas ends up having with Oscar's grandmother, who, as Mike was saying earlier on, was uh, was the the sister of Oscar's former beloved, whose name was Anna. So that's the next next narration that we get after after it starts off with Oscar.
1: And not to give too much of who died in the Dresden firebombing, right? Yeah. I mean,
0: we can kind of talk about Thomas for a bit here because eventually, um, as as his story kind of evolves, we don't have to get to the the end, but we should talk just about him because it'll help clean up the narrative a little. He goes from being unable to say words to eventually being able to speak at all, unable mm-hmm. to speak at all. And so he starts getting these these kind of notepads, these mm-hmm. little, and he writes out things, and he shows them to people, eventually getting down to the point where one hand is yes, one hand is no, mm-hmm. and kind of forming his own version of sign language. Um, his relationships, though, are bizarre, and they become kind of a driving point of the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's someone who leaves families and then comes, like, to new relationships and kind of evolves that over time. And the chapter that, to me, became frustrating, and then I kind of came around to understand why it was included, was him and his wife developed this notion of having an apartment which had public spaces and non-public spaces. Mm -hmm. And there was places that were somewhere, and there were places that were nowhere. And it was kind of informal, and then slowly takes over the apartment until like there's even confusion over what kind of what part of the apartment they were in and this to me is probably was the hardest for me to wrap my mind around they kind of get back to it and explain it later mm. how on earth do your students understand this
2: yeah. yeah it's uh it's and kind of like going back a little bit one of the themes that we do talk about and I'm sure to an extent you talk about it as well mike is voice um and <clears throat> And how voice relates with storytelling. Right. And so I think that as Thomas is losing his voice, he's losing his ability to tell his story. And that manifests itself in a number of different ways. And these different ways that he continues to communicate are his ways of kind of coping with that fact that he no longer has that story that he can tell. I, I, because this, the students are confused about the, about kind of the, these places are places and these places are nowhere. And I think that it was, if, and I, I might be wrong about this, but I took that as Thomas's attempt at being able to to have a relationship with Oscar's grandmother while still. Having parts of himself that are very private, that are very personal, mm-hmm. having trauma that is deeply ingrained within himself that he doesn't want to talk about. There are things that he doesn't want to talk about. there are things that he doesn't want to say. There are parts of his story that he does not want to have told. Uh, and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to have to go there. and as a result, He would go to those places in that, in, in their house where it would be a nowhere, where those are, those are parts of his story that are inaccessible. And these are places where he is, where he can kind of like either withdraw within himself or, or it's a place where he does not need to, uh, where he does not need to, um, to kind of explain that those aspects of his story, uh, so that's how I've always taken it. I'm not sure Mike if, if no, I
1: right. agree. And I would just say just uh, when the first day we get the novel, I just ask the kids to flip through it and so and because it's so disjointed and out of time, by the time they're sort of figuring Thomas out, they realize that oh when you turn the page and you see a picture of you know um, Olivier playing Hamlet. There's been nothing about that to that point, and so right. it's very out of order, so you just right. sort of live with like this doesn't make sense now, and I just tell them that it'll it'll come around um when sort of the story is ready to reveal itself yeah, like sure. like Thomas or any of these people experience this trauma or grief when they're ready to talk it it sort of will all come together
0: well and um stay tuned for later this season when we do slaughterhouse five because yeah. this in particular feels very much like a, Slaughterhouse-Five. Out
1: of time, literally, yeah.
0: I mean, and it's not only Dresden, it's the inability to to communicate yourself, and so you literally jump out of time. Yeah. Um, I will say, too, I guess to tee you guys up for the next part of this, um, this is parallel with the fact that he gets her a typewriter to Mm -hmm. write her history, and she kind of goes away and works on this, and then at the end it's all blank pages, which is... (laughs) I audibly yelled, I was like... (laughs) What the hell is this? Um, You know, again, and I... And Thomas doesn't want to be cruel, so he pretends to edit this thing because her vision is going. As a parallel, he can't speak uh, and she can't see. Yeah,
2: her meaning Oscar's grandmother.
0: Oscar's grandmother, that's right. Um, Who, at this point, we've also been introduced, lives across the street from him. Yes. Which is also significant later on. Um, But... um, the typewriter thing,
2: <laughs> please. Yeah, help, help yeah. So, me, so this is this is one of the the chapters that's spoken from Thomas's perspective, which, again, it's a little bit confusing because it's fr- it's about Oscar's grandmother. Um, the the uh the the part with the typewriter, Thomas is is uh in an endearing way, I think, trying to get. Uh, Oscar's grandmother to tell her story, to type up her story. And so she, uh, she kind of like goes into the room and spends weeks and months typing up her story. And it's supposed to be every part of her. This is her life. This is what it is that, uh, that, that, that is her identity and it turns out that her her and she's been kind of saying all along my eyes are crummy my eyes are crummy my eyes are crummy uh but thomas didn't realize that the 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 role in the typewriter had not either and and, and again i'm i'm I all of the all of the papers that I've ever written for school were always on a word processor. Oh, yeah, so you're computer,
1: too young. So you don't remember I'm old ribbons. To, yeah, too young to,
2: to uh, have been replacing ribbons or or uh, or kind of working with a typewriter, but. Uh, Nevertheless, Oscar's grandmother was hitting the keys, and so she could hear the, she, she could hear the, the keys were being pressed, but it wasn't actually writing anything on the page. And so it was heartbreaking for Thomas then to see that this whole, the, the identity of this character, her whole story that she's trying to tell, has amounted to a blank page. And he doesn't have the heart to tell her that. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, uh, gut-wrenching kind of moment and realization for Thomas.
0: And then, like a proud parent of a preschooler, he's like, oh, this is so good. I'm going to put it right on the fridge. The problem I have with this, and maybe it's just me, I don't know, but it's a very male-centric book. And one of the few times we'd have a woman tell her story, all the pages are blanks. <laughs> and I'm just like, come on, man. It, even if the narrative was changed slightly, like he couldn't bring himself to read it, it would accomplish the same thing. But it's just that he he doesn't tell her. And so we just never know her story. Right. Um, you know, which is kind of what happens with the mom. We don't really get to know what her feelings are, other than eventually it turns out that she met mm. this dude kind of in a group for people who deal with trauma but from an outside like it almost would be easier if we find out that this kid is slightly autistic because then he could also be jealous that she has friends and he's aware he doesn't have many friends but we since we don't get that we can't assume it and therefore, it just it, – it feels a little bit stilted in that way.
1: What I will say, though, what not having that voice makes for a great writing assignment. So like, yes. Like, tell this story or tell this episode or tell this incident from the mother's point of view yes. or somebody else's point of view. So then you can tell whether the kids are really getting it or not or are creative enough to understand from that point of view. So – that's an assignment I've done a couple of times. Yeah, to
2: yeah. tell that untold story. I've right. done that a couple of times yeah. as well. I think it's interesting what you're saying, Nick, especially about the female voices, because looking at the different female characters who have vocal agency in the story, you get Oscar's grandmother, who you're right, we don't get her story really from her own perspective. At least earlier on, you do get those moments, you do get those moments as as Oscar is growing up. Uh, Where you get some a a little bit more from her own perspective towards the end of the story, but you get her story through Thomas's lens. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to Oscar's mother, you don't get Oscar's mother's story from her own mouth. You get it through Oscar's lens, and you get her you get his impression of her story. And then even kind of going back to Abby Black, who is the one of the one of the first characters that Oscar encounters with the last name Black that. Uh, that he has a really interesting, uh, conversation with. You actually don't need, get to learn her story until almost the end of the story when you meet kind of in a crazy turn of events, the, her husband later on in the story. Right. So once again, it's all these female characters who are having their story told, not through their own mouth, but through the mouth of the, the men that are around them. And that's A, problematic, but I think that it's also B, it, it, is an opportunity, as as Mike was saying, as we're teaching it, to give that character the opportunity through through one of the... and Yes, through figuring out their own comprehension of the story, but also uh, giving them an opportunity to kind of have that voice told.
0: Well, I guess on top of that, though, Abby Black is intentionally misleading a nine-year-old, mm-hmm. which <laughs> doesn't help much to... I don't know. It, and, and again... Part of this, too, is that our main narrator is a nine-year-old, and you have to determine whether or not we're getting things honestly or if he's just interpreting things wrong. Right. Um, Because since we don't have a unified narrative voice, there's something there, uh, which is interesting. And, you know, uh, to be clear, too, other than the nine-year-old kid, it's not like the men are particularly idealized characters. No, At least when we get their story. Um, Jonathan Forer is apparently more like his main characters than he lets on. Oh, really? Uh, he apparently had a long time email contact with Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah, I read that there? a couple of
1: years ago, yeah. right? Yeah, um, yeah. I um, met him once when he was um, doing a book tour. Um, for Eating Animals, he was a big there's a there's a vegetarian thing in here too because yes. Oscar's a vegetarian, and he was a very strident vegetarian, and he spoke at the Atlanta History Center. Um, he's a good speaker and, you know, and it's a good book and, you know, I'm, I was a vegetarian for 16 years. Um, so yeah, I mean, he himself, I would say is precocious, um, and extremely intelligent. So, I
0: mean, like whether or not you like his novels, he's clearly struck a chord because the first two books, not only were smash successes, but then became movies. And the third one is here I am. I haven't read it yet, but I know it's already been optioned. So, um,
1: you know, we'll see. I'll say, since we started with this sort of, um, one of my favorite pieces of just magazine writing of all time is Tom Junot's uh, Falling Man. So that you reference the end where the Falling Man is like a flip book where he falls backwards. Um, so I often start the novel with reading that piece uh, just because it's such a, sort of a great way to capture the confusion around the days post 9-11 like where are people are you know we're going to find survivors and and that sort of mystery of who the man falling in that famous image is um and we were lucky enough to get him That he's got a Marist connection he's, he's friends with um a family that i've kept in touch with and so he um came and spoke to our class a couple years mm-hmm. ago Um, And as the kid said, like, Mr. Burns, you were just fangirling the whole time. (laughs) I totally was. Uh, But really, really great guy, really well-spoken. I'd love to get him back in our class or back at Marist. As people of our age. Because he lives in Atlanta, sorry.
0: No, no, please, I was just going to add to that. As people of our age, what is it like to read fictionalized versions of 9-11? Not not that it didn't happen, but, Mm -hmm. like, so much of the stuff that we consume about 9-11 is falling man, is first-person narratives, is... Documentaries of the event. So to have something set with that as its backdrop, that's very different. Um, and again, I mentioned this before. This is the most recent of our books. Uh, as we record, it's 2022. So this book is about 17 years old. Um, but you know, to to teach something, I mean, hell, as a history teacher, to teach the last 20 years is unusual, other than 9/11. Yeah. So to have a book that's on the curriculum that's less than two decades old is unusual so like for you as the people teaching it is it pleading with them to understand how significant this date is obviously you said talk to your family Mm -hmm. but even still like my parents can tell me a lot of stuff that i didn't live through that feels very different to them to have lived through it
1: yeah it just makes me think of o'brien again and like how to tell a true war story even though he plays with what's real and what's not in that uh and so so does this like real events real things happen but it's it's fiction, and, but he's trying yeah. to recreate how that felt or how that feels.
2: Yeah, and, and kind of thinking about the things they carry. The, uh, in terms of the narration there, once again, you get those snippets. You get those vignettes that are kind of this amalgamation, almost like this tapestry or this mosaic, that when, when you kind of morph all of these pieces together, you get kind of this, this story of war, right? And I think that in, in Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, You do this, you're doing the same thing, whether it's Oscar playing the, uh, the interview of the, the person who experienced grief as a result, as a result of the, uh, Hiroshima bombing, or if it's the, if it's his kind of like interior, uh, monologue in the role of Yorick, or if it's the, the, um, the, Encountering of the picture of the elephant crying and all these little snippets, these, these kind of like vignettes are all coming together into a story about grief. And I think that that's really the unifying thread is the universality of grief. Um, and so that I think if you, if you look at kind of like what it is that these, these different intersecting threads are trying to accomplish, I think that that's the, the, that's where the themes are, right? That's, that's the voice that we're looking at. That's that, uh, that's that notion of grief. That's that notion of meaning that, that Oscar is searching for. And what can be frustrating to the students sometimes is that sometimes you get an answer and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that's something that, uh, that the, that the students are wrestling with just like Oscar's wrestling with
1: it. And and throughout, we haven't mentioned this, but sort of in the epistolary sort of, um, Theme of, of, but Oscar's writing letters to these famous people, Jane Goodall yes. and Stephen Hawking, and and they're responding back with form letters yeah. or real letters. Yeah, okay. yeah. and so. And I think uh, it but door. again, he's looking for meaning yeah. throughout all that, yeah. I, I did something like that when I was in Choo but um, Did Ringo write back?
0: Ringo did not write back. <laughs> no. It was something I was actually doing in college as a way to reach out to other academics because I'm that kid. Um, but we read Hawking's like four times, too. Um because if anyone would have answers, it'd be Stephen
2: Hawking, I guess, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's a particularly interesting correspondence because it keeps coming back with this this note from, I would imagine, his secretary or something PR like that, person, who, who, yeah. who keeps saying like, "Your letter is being read," and and like, "Our your, your letter is very important to us." And then you do finally get an actual letter that that. Uh, that he writes and I, I have it just underlined here. I'll read it really quick. It says, Albert Einstein, a hero of mine, once wrote, our situation is the following. We are standing in front of a closed box, which we cannot open. And I think that that we go back and take a look at that line as a class because it's so symbolic of what what Oscar quite literally is trying to do. He has a key to what ends up being a lockbox that he that he cannot open. So he has the key, but he's standing in front of this box of meaning that he that he cannot open. And so I think that it's really interesting that it's like his, one of the heroes of Oscar finally does get back to him, and and the the meaning that he's searching for, the only meaning that he's able to really get is that. There you can't really unlock the box, you know? right. So it's it's kind of unsatisfying, and I think that that's why some of the students who don't, who don't, uh, who don't really love extremely loud and incredibly quotes, I think that that's that kind of notion of of that unsatisfactoriness to it. I think what might be one thing that they might cite. But I will say that it is it is well received by the students. I think that I've I've had some students that have really really loved it, and and for the most part in the classes that I've taught it, uh, it has been extremely well received
1: yeah I would say they read it, um and they get through it, and um yeah, some are frustrated with it, but the resolution at the end, yeah, it's not maybe as satisfying as they want, but that's what modern literature is, yeah. right, and so that, that's the point, um, but yeah, you don't always get the answers you want,
0: yeah. I mean, I think it happens, there's a quote very early on that's like, nothing is beautiful and true. Mm. And that's that's kind of the heart of the matter. Like, you, you can't, at, a, at a certain point, you have to give up on kind of one or the other. Mm. Um, Are there any other things that the kids like talking about? I mean, I know we'll progress the plot, but at this point, we're kind of in the deep of it. The book, to me, it doesn't have a soggy middle, but it builds so much stuff, and then the last two chapters, everything is revealed, and it's almost like a, a well, Like a car accident or something, where all of a sudden you have to kind of recollect everything that just happened in the last 20 pages. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot changes in the last 20 pages. Um, I guess one thing we haven't talked about is the kid is bruising himself. Like, there's some Mm -hmm. self-harm stuff. Um, Eventually the key, which, I mean, we mentioned he's trying to find the key from the vase that says uh, black on it. He's wearing on a chain around his neck, and it starts to, like, literally scar him. So he has a Band-Aid on his chest that he's using. Because giving that up is like the voicemails that he has of his father, which mm-hmm. he at one point bought a, a duplicate tape player thing so he can always keep that message. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's a little bit more there that we'll get to, deciding whether or not we want to tell everything. at the-
1: Yeah, but in Oscar's terms, he's wearing heavy boots a lot, which right. is it's a very clear metaphor for his grief or his heaviness. Um or figurative language. We yeah. talk about that. He um, just says heavy boots a lot. Right. And it, understandably so, of course. Yeah.
0: yeah. and and the author uses that as almost a scene cut. You know, I was having very heavy boots that day. And then then you can just end the scene and you know what that means. And it's it's useful and it again it is to me is an appropriate way a kid would rationalise things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the way that he doesn't understand how his mom can move on, uh, which she hasn't. She clearly has not, um, but he doesn't see that, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, anything else here? Because we can kind of get to the end. Do you guys want to spoil the ending?
2: I,
1: uh, Go ahead, Mike.
2: Yeah, I, I was going to say I think maybe we should. I think All it, right. it, it, it would be hard to it would be hard to talk about the about the story and not and not like spoil kind of the. Some of the the twists that are in there, I do think that it's worthwhile talking a little bit about some of those little snippets that are that are here and there. Um, I won't I won't go through and necessarily read them, but like the Nick, No, you know,
0: What I was going to say is, let's set the table, and then we'll give people a hard cut off if they don't want us to spoil it.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. So the
0: first thing I want to say is. The grandma who lives across the way has – she claims to have someone living with her, but Oscar's not sure whether
1: that's true or not. The renter, The yes. renter,
0: because he's never seen it, the renter. And uh, and whenever he comes over, the renter is at the museum or running errands or whatever. Um, until one time, he goes over to her house and literally is searching the house and hears something. Yeah. That's one, that's one thing we haven't talked about yet. Yes, is this, is this mysterious renter, right? Um, we haven't talked about, uh, yet, uh, the fact is, you mentioned this briefly, but for a long time, Mr. Black is touring him around to all these different environments, including one almost comical scene. I thought it was funny. Where they're out in like Queens and they get like s- some street meat of some sort. Uh, I forget what it is. It's a taco, I think. But, The kid is like, this is pretty good. Is it vegetarian? And the old man has nothing to say. But, like, we're building this world of New York, which is kind of told to him through this epistolary way, which is starting more and more to mimic what Thomas is writing in his parts of the story, that that they're wanderers, that they're trying to get to things. And he's trying to reach a part of his youth that we haven't quite gotten to. Mm Um, Anything else I'm forgetting that helps tie it together?
2: The, I think the one of the other things that is that is a little bit, again we've we've really alluded to it already, but the fact that Oscar's uh, Oscar's grandfather ends up leaving Oscar's grandmother, and we don't know the reason behind that, and you don't really know what it is that um, that led to Oscar's. That leads to Thomas, um, experience, well, I I know I kind of spoiled it already, but the the Dresden bombing being the thing that, uh, that causes Thomas all of this grief, and it's something that he's never really able to kind of overcome, I guess, is kind of like that third, last kind of, like, spoiler, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and, um, oh, I had something that's gone. But, to, to kind of wrap this all together, then, uh... Oscar is trying to deal with the fact that he, the school closes because of 9-11, and we kind of get walked through that. And when he comes home, his mom's not home yet. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, he blames her for not talking to the father one last time, because if mom was there, she would answer the phone. Mm-hmm. But instead, all he has are these voicemails, mm-hmm. um, which we replay parts of throughout the... like It's not just that we replay them, but he writes them in such a way that there's pauses. Yes. And that makes it all the like that's really impactful for a kid who doesn't who feels like he can't talk Mm -hmm. to his therapist, his French teacher, or his mother, and with his grandmother, like the relationship is very maternal, but not necessarily
2: that they're they're explaining what's going on to each other. Right. Clearly, everyone has secrets. I uh, guess one other thing that we that we actually definitely need to mention is what this key belongs to as well. The lockbox is another aspect that we didn't that we haven't talked about. So to bring up the key and then not ever bring it up in in, in terms of what it is that it unlocks would be I uh, I think would would be kind of a misstep. Yeah, and he he he
0: really goes out on a limb. He goes to like locksmiths. He goes mm-hmm. he, there's a there's a shop like a um, like it's a it sells pens and paper, like it's an office supply stationery. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And uh, the name um, Thomas Schnell is written on everything. Yeah. Uh, which he thinks is a clue from his dad. And and so he's literally does this math about how many locks there are in New York and how many locks each person has, and then every year that means there's this many more locks. It's a lot. Uh, we're talking millions of blocks, in fact, mm-hmm. um, which makes the quest seem all the more overwhelming. Um. Anyway, other than that, like, the relationship with the mother is very, it's not thin, it's just, it's kind of distant. Um, well,
1: well, yeah, from Oscar's point of view, but as we get to the end, we realize there's a lot more going on there than, than we were aware of, so,
0: yeah. So... I'll say hard stop here if you don't want to hear the spoilers yeah. at the end. Uh, but we got to talk about how this book ends. So, you know, stop here and come back to it if you want to read. I'll give you a count of three. One, two, three. Mike, what happens?
2: Yeah, so so to, to kind of answer some of those unanswered questions that we have, it is the the bombing of Dresden that causes Thomas to, uh, that causes Thomas all that grief. It's where he loses Anna. And also, I uh, and also an unborn child uh, to Anna uh, during that dress and bombing, and that is the thing that causes him all of the grief. It's also the thing that that leads to him, because he's not able to, uh, to deal with that grief, it's the reason why we, we hear that he ends up leaving Oscar's grandmother as well. Um, the, as, as this expedition is continuing along, and Oscar is looking for the owner of... Or what it is that this key ends up going to. He goes to a, is he a banker? I'm not sure what Abby, Abby Black's husband's, what, what her job is, but, uh, but nevertheless, the, the key ends up going to a lockbox that belonged to, uh, to the husband of Abby Black, who mm-hmm. was one of the first people that Oscar encounters. His father, uh, passed away. And they had the lockbox that had some uh that had like I I believe it's like his last will and testament and his last his last spoken words to his children. And so they, they were not able to open it though without the key that Oscar had. So in other words, Abby Black's um Abby Black's husband William William was was searching for the key while Oscar was searching for what it is that this key went to, which was this uh, which was this lockbox?
1: Which was in the vase, right? It was in an estate sale or something, yes, right? Yes, exactly. So, Oscar's dad got it.
2: Yeah. Oscar's father acquired this unknowingly. This sheet, yeah, unknowingly because it was taped to the bottom of uh, right. It was taped to the bottom of the vase, and so this is—it's not satisfactory for Oscar, but he does—he uh he does kind of. It's right around there, actually, that he gets the, uh, the letter from, uh, Stephen Hawking that talks about the, the, that, that, like, box that, that we cannot open, which is just so, it's so interesting that you have the literal box of the lock box and then the box that, uh, that Albert Einstein actually was, was quoting in that, in, in that quote that I had read earlier. Uh, and so Oscar is not, is, is not pleased with this, but ends up going and encountering, uh, goes back and is, is, walking into his grandmother's house, which is when he when he meets the renter uh, and it turns out dun, 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 that the renter is actually Oscar's grandfather. Uh, it is Oscar's grandfather who came back to New York City after September 11th uh, and reconnected with Oscar's grandmother. Uh, and Oscar's grandmother, the one thing that he that, that she said so many times to, the renter also Oscar's grandfather uh was that he cannot know he cannot know that you are uh that you are his grandfather uh and i think that that's because of all the grief that Oscar had experienced up until that point and the grief that Oscar's grandmother experienced as well with Thomas leaving the first time and wanting to protect Oscar from uh from that grief uh so we get we get the reveal of the renter and then lastly i guess i'll just i've, I've spoiled all of it up until this point if sure. i just spoil the fact that Oscar's mother was aware of the, of where it was that Oscar was going all along. So almost right. kind of like Guardian Angel style was kind of like calling into these different houses that Oscar was going to, making sure that he was okay, making sure that everything was all right. Uh, and it wasn't just a, a nine year old who was wandering the streets of New York that kind of from, from a distance, Oscar's mother was, was kind of what was there all along? And I think that Oscar en- ends up coming to realize that. And it's an important moment for him and his growth, as I was saying at the end of the story, when uh, when he kind of reconciles in a way with his mother. Um, and it's it's it is it's it, it doesn't fix the grief. But it does, uh, it does show kind of a little bit of that, that dealing with it. We should talk about how they try to fix the grief,
0: which is digging up his father's <laughs> Yeah, grave. I wanted to go there.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about opening that box. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know what to say other than it's just pretty hard to believe um, that they go back and dig that and then throw in the manuscript that – Thomas had been writing, right? Right. Um, but just the idea of digging up a grave, with a nine-year-old, and a limo driver like, come
0: on. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's the thing I, I want to bring up too. Just like, because each of the, the the various blacks that they meet have a thing about them. Like, there's the the Chinese guy, faux black, yeah. who has the I love New York stuff, but in Chinese and like Pinyin, it's NY means you, so it's just the I love oh, you stuff. And yeah. you have. Um, Alice, who lives in that industrial building and keeps painting the pictures of the same guy, but she's a squatter, so she's afraid that they're there to rat her out. And then you have the helpful limer driver who's helping to desecrate a grave. Yeah. And it's just... It, it, I mean, f- everything is illuminated, is clearly heightened reality. It's it's almost fantasy at times. This is... When you when you put it together, that's what this is, too, in a lot of ways. Uh, because it is. The friends that make along the way, there's these mythical characters that have these... Things about them, and then Stephen Hawking shows up, yeah. and you're just like, well, fine, whatever." <laughs> but it 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 is it is interesting. Um, I almost wish, in some ways, it was a little bit more heightened because that would that would make it. But you have it against such a bleak backdrop, you can't have a musical about 9/11. Well, not yet. I'm sure it'll come one day, but at this point, so I don't know. It's just because this came out four years after. Yeah. Right. So.
1: Anyway. And, and talking about Mike, the, the reveal that the mother was. Sort of calling ahead, or that Mr. Black knew it was, you know, Oscar wasn't on his own all along. There are some little clues in the dialogue now and then where Oscar realizes, wait, how did you know my name? Or how did you know something? So in retrospect, the kids can go back and sort of see those clues that they. Maybe Oscar could have known, or, or maybe the more perceptive kids—I don't know if yours pick on it. Some, yeah. some do, or they ask about those passages. Yeah, um.
2: I think that it, it really comes to fruition in a line where essentially Oscar narrating the moment when they're digging up the the uh, his father's grave. Yeah, talk about another another box right. to, to be opened, right? Yeah. And, and it's an empty box to, at the end of at the end of the day. Uh, but there, Oscar has a line where he says that, looking back, I probably should have known that he was my grandfather. And there, it's like, okay, here it is, cut and dry. Like this is the, this is the the moment where the students, even even those that hadn't been following along quite as closely, might be able to, to take a step back and be like, okay, that's that, that's what's going on here. Sure.
1: So yeah, that's sort of fun or frustrating, depending on how you look at that. Like, oh, it all comes together, or like, oh, come on, it all comes together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But yeah. Anything else you guys want to touch on? I mean, we can. We've done a good job on this. It's it's just really, and and I know this sounds like a cop out, but it's really hard to describe if you have not sat down and read it. Just because, even even if you've gotten this far and listened to the spoilers, just because of the literary style, it's it's really like nothing else you'll find unless you're really doing esoteric.
1: Literature. Yeah, I think you have to experience, like, read it. Hearing about it, it's not the same as, as going through it. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just just kind of thinking about the the one thing that I haven't touched on. I know I, I know I spoke a little bit about like voice and a little bit about meaning, but one other thing that we uh, that we kind of talk about is, and you're right, Mike. It's and I probably took this from you at some point in, <laughs> in 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 teaching it, but this like reaching into the past in order to establish some sort of meaning or identity in the future. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that as well in the, in the story. Just a couple of those snippets of, uh, the, the, the elephants who, um, are, who grieve the loss of their, of their fallen, uh, of their fallen family members, but then are able to, when they hear the voice of that, uh, when they hear the voice of that, th- that deceased. Call. Elephant. Yeah. They, they hear the, the voice of that deceased call. They immediately come to the Jeep because they, because they recognize it. And the, uh, the, the Tomiyasu, the, the incredible grief in that interview with the Hiroshima bombing that the, the line at the end of it always gets me. It's something along the lines of uh, the, the interviewer asks, well, why did you why did you come forward to tell your story? And it's something along the lines of I thought that if people could hear my story and hear my grief, there wouldn't be any more war. And so it's kind of like this, this usage of the past in order to establish some sort of meaning in the, in the future. And the one, maybe my favorite part of this story, and I know, Catherine, when you're listening to this, you're going to laugh, but the, uh, the sixth borough jumper, uh, and the, the story of the sixth borough is so fascinating to me because you have this, this story that Oscar's father is telling to him and it, it kind of ends with like, typical childhood story like oh that was so awesome and it's the in, at the end of the day it's the story of like a long jumper who would jump from one borough to the right. other and slowly they realized that the sixth borough of new york was starting to distance itself so they captured all of the, the things that they loved most about the sixth borough one of which was central park and they kind of like pulled it up and brought it over to uh to the city of manhattan and uh, and there was this this love story between a young boy and a young girl who captures that voice in a jar and puts it on the and puts it on the shelf and the way that Oscar's father tells that story is so beautiful and it ends with Oscar saying that was so that th- that was such a great story and as Oscar's father is tucking him into bed Oscar says like hey dad and and Oscar's father says like yes Oscar and he says nothing and he right. doesn't he doesn't say I love you and at the very end of the story when if, if you read back the the very end that's one of the moments that Oscar wishes that he could go back and rewrite he wants so badly to say I love you but just like Thomas who can't speak he didn't say it in that moment and now he can't and it you get in the reversal when you hear that story back and beca- because he with the falling man pictures that you were talking about earlier Mike you get kind of like the story back in reverse and it, the the way that he describes is that that story goes from I love you to once upon a time. So he gets to say it there in that, in that moment. And it's just this kind of like this revision of the, the grief filled history that Oscar has. Um, And I think that it, it ends up coming back at the end of the story in a way that shows just how important and powerful that voice is.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I like the way with the images of the man falling upwards at the end um, as you're flipping through. It, it's it's literally going back in time and, right. and you're revisiting that and telling that story all over again to, to tell the story that you want to have. Yeah, right.
2: and, and, and and I will also say that in the, the, the first time that the six borough jumper that that story comes up, he's described for a moment as suspended right. in the air. Right. And that's exactly what you get with the, uh, with the fall. Yeah. Break. I love the so ending so. that way. So
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So Final thoughts. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Yes.
2: Mike. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've spoken very highly about this story to to my students. In fact, actually, Mike, I don't know if you know this, but I didn't read it before I taught it either. Oh, really? And, and so the first year that I taught it, I refused to go ahead. I refused to read ahead. I well, wanted I to that. read it along with them right. so that when they were asking those questions, partially it was practical, so that when they were asking these questions about, like, well, who is this character? Who is he talking to? I could quite literally say... I don't know. Let's I don't find know if we're ever going to get that answer because I haven't read it yet. Uh, but I but I enjoyed reading it the The first time I ever read it. I was reading it just a little bit ahead of where the students were so I could kind of uh, be able to kind of cycle back with them. And I really liked doing that. I did that with Pride and Prejudice the first time that I taught it for Britlet as well. Um, but this had a lot of really powerful moments the first time I read it. And uh, I can remember standing in Ivy and Finishing the story and kind of similar to Oscar, kind of like closing that last page and being like, wow, that was really awesome. And I, 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 I'm very fond, I'm very fond of the text and really glad that we, that we teach it. I will say that this is, I'm coming back to the American lit curriculum for, for the first time in four years. Yes. So welcome back. I'll be able to, I'll be teaching it again in the spring. And it's probably the text that I missed teaching the most when I left Hamlet And it's probably the one that I'm looking forward to the most teaching when we're yeah. coming back to it. All right, good. Mike?
1: Uh, I'm probably a little less enamored of it, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But I see the utility in it and what it allows me to teach about structure and Mm. postmodernism and 9-11 and all that. Just the more I teach it and the more – and not to prejudice people that are listening to this, but Oscar just starts to grate on me. Just just a little too – I don't know. Just a little too – to to Oscar to Faye I don't know. Um,
2: Hopefully not as much as Willie Loman.
1: No yeah no. definitely not Willie. was just oh, I just want to slit your wrists at that every, every spring. <laughs> <That's depressing. laughs> so this isn't that. Um, See <laughs> so our previous yeah. episode on Death Note. So, so. I, yeah it's good and I, but it just Oscar's kind of is wearing me down a little yeah. bit. So um, no I enjoy teaching it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Um so I. Maybe I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, I remember in, I think it was 2007, when I first saw The Hurt Locker, and it was a movie about a thing that was going on in my lifetime, about a thing that mm-hmm. was currently going on, and I remember it hitting different because it wasn't about Vietnam. It was about something that happened. This being a book about 9-11 feels that way. Now, obviously, it's a time capsule, because 22 years later, everything from the technology... Like, the kid would never be using a phone book now, mm-hmm. which is a very different thing. Um... The structure, I think, is interesting. The book is interesting. I get that you're annoyed by Oscar, because I was very confused by... I mean, I I was frustrated by him at times. I was frustrated by Thomas at times. Um, This this chapter is about nothing, I guess. Um, It comes together in an interesting way at the end. There were a few twists I didn't see coming. um, But by the end, a lot of the things were... I mean, the thing that really frustrated me was Abby Black at the beginning we could have ended this book 200 pages. <laughs> um but you know other than that like it, it it builds it's interesting it's 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 a way for the kid to discover the world and since it kind of straddles um historical non-fiction almost right historical fiction and this kind of heightened realism it's it's it, again it's like nothing you'll ever read it's even starkly different in some ways than everything is illuminated which has a A distant person he's talking about, which has to do with the Holocaust. Um, So, yeah, I I can see why, as an English teacher, you'd want to read it. As an individual reading it, I'm glad I have this catharsis of figuring it out with you. Mm. It'd be a very hard thing to pick up on your own and have no one to talk to about. Uh, It'd be a great selection for a book club. Right. Or a class um, so I, that's where I think I'd leave it
1: yeah I think it lends itself to like our humanities approach because it's so multimedia because it's, it's so fractured because it's so layered with history uh, we could do a lot to teach it in AMX, but um, well, similar to what we do in American Lit so yeah it's a very teachable you can do a lot uh, with it that way yeah I'd totally agree
0: and just having different styles of writing, like this is a traditional narrative, but it's also not, and that's cool. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so we're done today, and I appreciate you guys listening and sharing. Uh. But we've been teeing up the next episode. So in two weeks, we'll be back with uh, Mary Russell's, um, The Sparrow. Yeah. Uh, Sci-Fi, very different than what we've talked about. Um. But also non-linear narrative. So get ready for that. Yeah. Uh. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Mike. Thank you, Nick.
0: Uh and Mike. And thank you listening guys. Um bye. Required reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks.